love it, I love it. Hey, we're starting a brand new series today on the book of Daniel. And over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about what it looks like to live differently in our world. And I love it. I mean, nothing like some Tom Petty at church, right? But, but listen, the, the lyrics... Yeah, we know who the Tom Petty fans are. Um, those lyrics to that song, listen, they could not fit better with where we're going today and over the next several weeks in this series. So, man, I've been excited about preaching through the book of Daniel, and I'm just praying it's going to impact our lives in a great, great way. Uh, when I first became a youth pastor at the ripe old age of 19, I had this dream to reach students from our local community who were far from God and didn't have a home church anywhere. Now, um, I was 19, so I had no idea what I was doing, right? I was kind of thrown into the fire. And so I was trying to come up with any and every idea I could to reach students. And, and one of the ideas that I came up with was this. I thought it'd be a great thing to do like a large-scale outreach event where we brought in a big-name Christian band, we brought in a speaker, and, and we just put kids in an environment where hopefully they could hear about and meet Jesus. So I planned this big event, printed up a bunch of event flyers, and I pulled together a team to help me take these flyers and to put them everywhere we possibly could in the community. And after we did that, we kind of went back and, and uh, sat in an office, and we stuffed over 300 letters and flyers into envelopes to mail out to other churches. We wanted to invite them to be a part. Well, I was getting excited, right? I mean, I was convinced this event was going to be unbelievable. Thousands of kids showing up. You know, all these churches, they're bringing their student groups. Hundreds of kids meeting Jesus. And I was really excited until about a week after I mailed those letters. And one of my letters and flyers came back to me in the mail from one of the churches I had sent it to. I still remember the name of the church to this day. Um, but they actually included my letter and flyer in their envelope. And, and their youth pastor sent it back. And, and I remember sitting in my office. I opened it up. And I'm trying to think... Get this guy benefit of the doubt. He's just writing me this letter telling me how awesome this is that we're doing this. But instead, I opened it, and inside was my flyer with a post-it note stuck to the front. And all it said was this. Thanks, but no thanks. We teach our students to be in the world, not of it. Now, I would love to tell you that in that moment, like this great calm and peace came over me, right? <laughs> Holy Spirit just filled me up, and I had so much patience and calm, but, but that wasn't the case. Instead, man, I got fired up, right? I got frustrated. And in, a, in, a, in an act of anger, I grabbed my phone book off my bookshelf because back then that's what you did. If you wanted to find a phone number, you got a phone book. And so I, I looked up the phone number to this church in the phone book and I called the youth pastor, right? Probably was a bad idea, but I did anyway. I called him and as soon as he got on the phone, I just let him have it. I mean, I told him how ridiculous and unnecessary his gesture was. I told him that I didn't appreciate him mailing my flyer back. If he didn't want to come, just, just don't come, but don't mail my stuff back to me. And then I proceeded to tell him, this was the kicker, that I hoped at some point in his life he would stop playing his legalistic church games and actually start caring about reaching students far from God. Now, now listen, listen. Did it feel good in that moment to tell him off? Felt great. <laughs> But should I have done it? Nah, I'd probably say I shouldn't have done it. I mean, I'll say today I definitely shouldn't have done it. And by the way, I hung up on the guy after I told him I definitely shouldn't have, have done it. Listen, I was 19, I was young and dumb, and since then God has ripped a lot of anger issues out of my life. But, but look, I will tell you one thing has remained true with me to this day, 14 years later, and here it is. 
to this day, I still, I still have a deep biblical conviction that lives inside of me that the simple mission of God's church is to get the message and story of Jesus to people who desperately need a relationship with him. I'm biblically convicted that that's true. And, and here's why. Because Jesus in Matthew 28 told us that that's his goal and mission for his church, didn't he? I mean, he said to us as his followers that, that he wants us to go into all the world to make disciples, to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, to teach them all that he's commanded us. And I've had this dream ever since God called me to ministry to pastor and lead a people who are passionately committed to that mission, which is why I love pastoring this church so much. Like, listen, I know we still have a lot of work to do, right? But I believe that the people sitting in the seats this morning are committed to that mission, and that gives me a lot of joy. But I need you to know, man, because that conviction, that dream lives inside of me, it, it still frustrates me. It still causes this discontent to rise up inside of me. I, I don't get angry like I used to, but, but I still get frustrated when I hear people who claim to be mature followers of Jesus using that phrase, in the world but not of the world, as their way of justifying church being about nothing more than a bunch of Christians hiding out in a building like this once a week while doing all they can to keep people far from God at arm's length. Look at me, that's not the goal of the church. That's not the purpose of God's church. And that's according to Jesus, not James. And I'll, I'll prove it to you um, in an even greater way. I, I want to go to the passage that people base this in the world but not of the world slogan on. It's a passage from John 17. In John 17, Jesus is actually praying the night before he goes to the cross. He's praying for all of his followers, not just the ones who were following him then, but he was actually praying for us all the way back then, those who would follow him today. And in John 17, look at what he says in verse 15 as he's praying for us. He says, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I'm not of the world sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now listen, don't miss the gist of what Jesus is praying here. Right? He, he comes before God and he says, God, just as you sent me into this world, I want to send them out into the world. And church, why did God send Jesus into the world? Well, John 3, 17 says Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. In Luke 19.10, Jesus, he's hanging out with wee little Zacchaeus. Remember that guy? Climbed up in the tree to see him. Remember what he said to Zacchaeus? The son of man has come to do what? To seek and to save the lost. And church, do you know why Jesus wants us to go into this world? Why he's sending us? It's for the same purposes. He's sending us into the world, not to condemn the world, but to tell the world that there's a God who loves them and a Savior who wants to give them new and eternal life. He sent us into the world to seek out those far from God and to help them find their way back to him. That's why Jesus sends us. And as Jesus is praying for us, he prays a couple of unique things. He says, Father, um, don't take them out of the world. Like, don't remove them, but just protect them, if you will, from the evil one, their enemy, Satan, who wants to destroy them as they're working to be about my purposes. And then also he says, sanctify them in the truth. In other words, Jesus is asking God to change us. As we go into the world, he's praying, God, would you make them different? Meaning that, that he wants us to become more and more like him. Do you know what it means to be different from the world? It means that you're like Jesus. That's all it means. 
Like if you want to know how to live differently in this world, I would encourage you, don't come up with your own ideas of what it means to be different. Read about the life of Jesus. That's the mark you're trying to hit. That's the goal of your life. It's to be like him. And so Jesus is praying, God, would you just sanctify him, make him more and more like, like who I am. And the implication of Jesus' prayer is this. Not that we'd simply be different from the world, right? He's praying, God, would you make them differ from the world so that they can be effective at making me known to the world when they run into it for the sake of making me known? You see, that's the gist of Jesus' prayer. And the reason this series that we're starting today on the book of Daniel is so important is because over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about how to live that life, how to be in this world while not being of the world but realizing that God sent us into the world for a great purpose. And so I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to grab it. Go to Daniel chapter 1 with me. Daniel chapter 1. If you have a device, you can turn your Bibles on and go to the same place. And uh, if you didn't bring anything, then you can follow along with me on the screens in a moment. But as you're making your way to Daniel chapter 1, I want to give you some background and context so that you can really have clarity on what we're getting ready to read, all right? In the Old Testament, when God came to Moses to establish his covenant relationship with the Jewish people, God was very clear in describing how that relationship should work. And I'll make it really easy, right? God came to Moses. Moses, here are 613 laws that I want you to give the people. And you tell the people that if they'll follow these laws, I'll be their God, I'll bless them, I'll protect them from their enemies. Like if they'll just do what I say, this is gonna be an awesome relationship for them. But he said, Moses, you also need to let them know that if, if they don't obey my commands, if they insist on dishonoring me, choosing their way over my way, things are going to go really badly for them. And one of the things God said would go badly for the people is this. He said they would actually lose the promised land that he was going to give them to live in. Right? Leviticus 26.33, God said it plainly. If you disobey me, then your enemies are going to come in, conquer you, take your land, and you are going to be scattered throughout the nations. Now, I don't know about you, that logic to me seems pretty simple to follow, right? I obey God, he blesses me, I disobey God, not so, not, not so much, right? Bad things are, are happening. That's logic that my three-year-old daughter can understand. So I'm just thinking off the top of my head that, that the Jewish people at the end of the day, they would have wanted to get that relationship right, But what's crazy is when you read the Old Testament, you find out they got it wrong time and time again. Instead of remaining faithful to God, they chose the path of disobedience constantly and consistently, even though they knew the potential consequences of doing so. That's why I still want to do a series sometime on the Old Testament, I've told you this before, called God's Not Mean, People Are Dumb, right? God set these people up for success but they totally disregarded his way of life. And what we see playing out in Daniel chapter one is this. God's patience finally runs out and Leviticus 26, 33 begins playing out. A man named Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the most powerful nation on earth at the time, Babylon, he strolls into Jerusalem as a godless pagan man. He conquers the people, he takes over the land, and the scattering of the Jewish people begins. And so with that in mind, I want us to pick up in verse 3. I'm going to start reading Daniel 1, verse 3, and uh, let's read about what happens next. The Bible says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, 
and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. That was a Babylonian language, by the way. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, new names, Babylonian names. Daniel, he was called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he was called Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. So the story tells us that as the Babylonians are conquering the Jewish people, that the king, he comes to one of his key guys and he says, listen, be on the lookout for a specific type of person. He said, I, I want you to find young Jewish men who are attractive, who are intelligent, who have a knack for learning, who display leadership potential, who could possibly serve and lead in my kingdom one day. Also, these guys, they need to be of either royal or noble birth. And the king's plan was to bring guys like that into his palace and to completely strip them of their God-given Jewish identities and to teach them how to be Babylonian, not only culturally, but, but in their leadership. And as we just read, Nebuchadnezzar's guy, man, he, he brings back four friends, found some guys that fit the bill. This is Daniel, this is Hananiah, Mishael, this is Azariah. So imagine this with me. Biblical scholars believe that Daniel and his friends couldn't have been more than 16 years old when all this is going on. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being 16 years old, a foreign country invades your land, they kidnap you, they drag you away to their country, you've never been there before, and when you get there, they work to strip you of everything that's been familiar and normal to you your entire life, and what they want to do is conform you to their culture and their way of life, right? Like no more learning or experiencing those things that you enjoy, they're taking that away from you. No more of your own food, like no more Chick-fil-A, man, Right? No more mellow mushroom pizza on the weekends. You're going to eat what they put in front of you. Uh, you're not allowed to speak English anymore. They're going to teach you a new language, and you're going to speak that language. And by the way, they're not calling you the name that mom and dad gave you at birth. They're going to give you a new name, and they're going to call you by that name, and you're going to be expected to answer to that name. Can you imagine that? I mean, how do you think you'd respond? You think you'd give in to kind of all that was going on? You think you'd give up? Like, would it be too much? Or do you think you would take a stand, refuse to back down, and, and not give in to what was happening in your life? Well, I want to show you how Daniel and his friends responded. Go back to the passage. Look at verse 8 with me. The Bible says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, at first glance, this might seem like a really weird verse, right? Like Daniel's worried about food. He's fine with speaking a new language, fine with having his Bible taken away. Uh, he's fine with, with not eating the food that he enjoys. I'm sorry, he, he's fine with, with uh, having his name changed, but, but he's really pitching a fit about, about having to eat a different kind of food than the food he's enjoyed. That seems weird, doesn't it? Like the food thing, probably to a lot of us, seems like the least of Daniel's worries, but in reality, you find this when you study this passage, in reality, the food issue was Daniel's biggest issue. And the Bible doesn't clearly tell us why in Daniel 1, but there are some things that we can know and assume based on history and culture. And, and I'll tell you why this food issue was such a big issue. One, 
um, this food that Daniel and his friends were being offered could have easily broken the dietary laws that God had given to him and the Jewish people, right? So for Daniel, don't miss this. For Daniel eating the food, this could have been an obedience issue. He could have been looking at that food, saying to himself, if I eat that, I have to disobey God. And, and I can't give in to eating this food if, if that's what I have to do in order to eat the food. Um, secondly, we know that, that Daniel, as he's in the king's palace, that there are several other Jewish people outside the palace being oppressed and working as slaves under Babylonian rule. So for Daniel, this could have been a justice issue, right? He could have been looking at all of his friends out there being beaten down, working as slaves, barely getting any food, thinking to himself as he's looking at, at the amazing food in front of him, what is it going to say to those people out there if I eat this? Is it going to say to them that I'm, I'm fine living it up while they're out there suffering? I can't eat this food. Like it could have been a justice issue. Um, it could have been for Daniel a worship issue. You see, this food that he was being offered, again, it was coming out of a pagan culture, pagan nation. And scholars believe that most of the food people would eat back then would have first been offered to some kind of pagan god. Um, it could have easily been blessed by some kind of pagan uh, religious leader or priest. And so Daniel could have been staring down this food going, if I eat that, what is that saying about where my devotion lies? If I eat this food, is that, is that communicating that I'm fine with honoring pagan gods over my God? So again, it could have been a worship issue. And then lastly, one more possibility. He could have refused to eat the food since it was coming directly from the king. It could have been an allegiance issue, if you will. You see, Daniel's refusal to eat this food could have been his way of stating that I am going to remain faithful to God, not the king. And I'm not going to trust in the king to provide and take care of me. I'm going to trust... God to provide and take care of me for all that I need. You see, these are the possibilities, and, and we don't know which of these possibilities weighed on Daniel's heart and mind the heaviest. But what we do know is this. We know that his refusal to eat this food was a choice to remain faithful and obedient in his relationship with God. It was his way of refusing to back down to the culture around him. He was taking a stand for what he knew was right, and he was refusing to compromise in the midst of a godless culture trying to get him to compromise. Another way of saying it is this. In that moment, Daniel was making a choice to remain holy. Now, I think it's important for us to understand what that word holy means because I think these days holy gets a bad rap at times. Uh, because for some of us, when we think about that word holy, our brain immediately goes to holier-than-thou type people, right? You know those type of people, don't you? Those people that are doing awesome in, in life, and they think they're better than you because they're not you know, doing as awesome as them. You know the kind of people I'm talking about? It's those same people who strive to be different from the world just for the sake of being different from the world. And they then allow their differences with the world to divide them from those who desperately need a relationship with Jesus. You see, you have to understand there is a big difference between being holy and being holier than thou. And God doesn't want us to be holier than thou. In fact, when you go to the Gospels and you read about Jesus, you find Jesus rebuking holier than thou people, right? He corrected them. He confronted them. You need to take comfort in, this, in that, some of you. Some of you that think about holier than thou people, I don't like being around those people. I don't want to be one of those people. Well, Jesus didn't want to be one of those people, and he didn't like being around them either. But listen, you have to understand, while God doesn't call us to be holier than thou, he does want us to be holy. You see, the Bible tells us that God is holy. 
And his desire for us as his people is to be holy just like him. As I was studying for this message, I came across a great description of what it means for you and I to be holy. This is from an old English bishop named John Charles Ryle. And I want you to listen to what he says. This is such a biblical description of holiness. He says, holiness is separation to God. It's devotion to God, service to God. And it's, a, and it's being of one mind with God and wanting God's will. You see, again, according to, to Ryle, according to the Bible, holiness is... It's about you and I choosing to set our lives apart to what God wants for us, over what the world wants for us, over what we want for ourselves. Holiness, it's about you and I choosing to be like Daniel and refusing to compromise in the areas of obedience, allegiance, worship, and church, even justice. Now, the reason that this conversation about holiness is so important for us today is simple. And I think you'll agree with me. Because in reality... The culture that we find ourselves living in today, it's a lot like the culture Daniel found himself living in back in Babylon. Right? Wouldn't you agree with me that we live in a culture that constantly tries to persuade us that there is a great way to do life and it involves leaving God out of it? Like, doesn't culture preach if you want to know success and recognition and honor and prestige that you're going to have to make some compromises along the way? And at the end of the day, if, if you want to actually know joy and satisfaction in life, it's going to mean that in moments you completely push God aside. Can we agree that's our culture? And look, if we don't understand how to guard ourselves against that type of cultural persuasion, it won't be long before we find ourselves compromising our holiness by compromising our obedience, our worship, our allegiance, and even the way that we treat other people. So for the rest of our time today, we're just going to spend um, uh, the time talking about those reasons as to why we as people might compromise holiness so that we can understand how to better guard ourselves against doing so. Uh, if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write this stuff down. First, the reason some of us compromise in holiness, it's because our identity is unclear. Daniel's refusal to eat the king's food lets us know that Daniel was very clear on his identity. You see, Daniel was a guy who understood that first and foremost, before he was anything else in life, he was a son of God. Before he was a teenager, before he was uh, a potential Babylonian leader, before he was a, a noble, royal uh, person, before he was attractive and intelligent, he saw himself as a son of God. And his refusal to compromise in, in holiness was ultimately a refusal to compromise who he knew he was. He, he refused to compromise his identity. And listen, it's so important for you and I as followers of Jesus to be clear like Daniel on our identity. Meaning that you and I have to get out of bed every single day of our lives and see ourselves first as Christian, as follower of Jesus a son or daughter of God. And I'm just telling you, if you are unclear on your identity, it's going to become so easy for you to compromise your holiness. And I'll, I'll give you some examples so that you can understand what I mean, all right? Let's say you're a business guy. Let's say you wake up every morning and, uh, and you go to a job where you're leading people, you're making sales, you're devising strategic business plans in order to earn greater profits, I just want to tell you, like, if your entire identity is wrapped up in, I'm a business guy, it's going to be really easy for you at some point to be dishonest, 
to cheat somebody, to steal from somebody, to use or abuse somebody in order to know greater success and to make more money. But look, if you're the business guy that gets out of bed every day and you say, no, before I'm a business guy, I am a follower of Jesus, right? And God's put me here on the earth to be different from the rest of the world so that I can actually show the world who Jesus is. And because I know I'm a follower of Jesus before I'm a business guy, why would I ever lie, cheat, steal, or abuse people in order to be successful or make more money? Like in doing so, I completely lose my ability to live out the purpose for which God created me. Let me talk to the teenagers and college students in the room for a moment. And I want to press into this because remember, Daniel, he was 16 years old while all this was going on. Like if you're that teenager or college student in the room who just sees yourself as a teenager or college student, that's all you are, I'm going to tell you, it won't be long before you're doing things that dishonor God, hurt you, and hurt other people. Because you're going to walk around, and I heard, I was a youth pastor for 10 years, I get it, right? Here's the excuse, well, I'm just a teenager, I'm just a college student, that's what we do, right? I'll be about the Jesus stuff later in life, but I mean, everybody else is living this way, and so I'm going to live this way, like, you know, I'll get over this, it's just what the teenage and college years look like. Students, can I tell you, that is a lie from the enemy, the enemy who wants to destroy your life and make you useless for the kingdom of God. I'm just going to tell you, as a youth pastor, I knew some students who completely shook the world with their faith and their love for Jesus because they refused to believe in those kind of lies and excuses. Parents, I want to say to you, don't buy into that lie that this is just what teenagers do. Parents, you understand that we have a real enemy who wants to devour your child and destroy his or her life, right? Don't believe the lie that this is just what teenagers do, this is how they live, this is what college students do. I'm telling you, teenagers, college students, God wants to use you greatly. And he can use you greatly. So don't buy into those excuses of I'm just a teenager or college student. Instead, wake up, get out of bed every day, and see yourself first and foremost as Christian, follower of Jesus, son or daughter of God. Look at me, understanding who you are, church, gives you great understanding on how to live. And I want to encourage every one of us, be clear on your identity first and foremost. You're a follower of Jesus before you're anything else. The second thing, second thing. The next reason some of us compromise our holiness is because our fear is too great. Uh, I make it a habit to be really honest with you, and so I'm going to be honest with you. I want to tell you today that choosing holiness at times can be very, very risky. At times, choosing holiness could potentially cost you some things. Like in Daniel's case, choosing holiness, it could have cost him a position of honor and power in the king's service. And listen, do you know that his refusal to eat the king's food actually could have cost him his life? If Nebuchadnezzar would have found out that he was being defiant, man, he could have served up Daniel's head on a platter and not thought twice about it. Daniel was taking a risk in choosing holiness. And we all have to understand that choosing holiness for us can be risky at times as well, which I think is why some of us might compromise holiness. We see the risk of holiness as greater than the reward of holiness. And I'll give you a couple of examples, right? Like, let's say your boss walks into your office at work, and he or she asks you to do something dishonest or unethical. And in that moment, your decision, it's pretty clear, right? Here's the decision. Do I remain obedient to God... And do I choose to do what I know is right 
as someone who desires to live differently in this world for the sake of making Christ known to others, or do I compromise my holiness, do I compromise my obedience, and do I say yes to my boss because I don't want to get fired, man, right? I can't afford to be out of a job right now. That sounds too risky to me. But what about this? Let's say that you have some friends that are engaging in certain behaviors that you feel like you can't engage in because those behaviors might require you to compromise holiness. Again, the choice you have to make, it's simple. Do you remain obedient and allegiant to God? And do you do what you know is right? Or do you go along with what your friends are doing out of fear that they might not want to hang out with you any longer if you don't participate in, in what they're doing? See, I could give examples of this all day long, but I think we probably all know what it's like to feel the kind of fear that I'm describing. And our choice is simple. Do we cave to fear? Do we cave to fear and compromise? Or do we remain faithful to God and choose holiness, choose obedience, choose allegiance, even if it means we lose some things in the process because we trust in God enough and we believe his promises enough to know that he's going to care for us, he's going to provide for us, and he's going to be all that we need. That's the choice. The last thing is this. The last thing is this. The last reason we tend to compromise our holiness, and this again is found in Daniel's story, is because our desires are too weak. Our desires are too weak. And I'll help make sense of this, all right? Go back to the story and think about this with me again. As a 16-year-old teenage kid, Daniel is brought into the palace of the most powerful ruler on the entire earth at the time. He's sitting at the king's table. He has been hand-selected for a potential position of prestige and honor in the king's palace one day. Most powerful nation in the world. He sits down to dinner, and it's like a spread, right? It ain't like dollar menu, Mickey D's kind of food. This is like Ruth, Chris kind of stuff. This is good food. The king is eating this food and drinking this wine. I mean, as a teenage kid, that was probably really attractive to Daniel, wasn't it? But here's what's crazy about Daniel's story. He put all that on the line. You see, there was something that Daniel desired more than what the world was offering him. You know what he desired? This is what we see in his story. What he desired was to know God deeply and to make him known in the midst of a faithless and pagan culture. And that was enough for Daniel to remain faithful and obedient to God. And look at me. I wonder if the same is true for us. Like, I wonder what our greatest desire in life is. Do we have a stronger desire for what the world has for us? Or do we have a stronger desire for all that God wants from us and for us? In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis, he said that as followers of Jesus, at times, one of our biggest issues is this. It's not that our desires are too strong, but that they're too weak. That at times, we are just far too easily pleased. And, and I'll make sense of that for us. I want you to do this. Think about your own life for a moment, right? I don't want you to think about who you want to be. I want you to think about your life right now, today, okay? And again, here's the question I want to ask you. What would you rather have? Would you rather have success, honor, prestige, money, pleasure, power, all these temporary things that, that the world offers that offer us no true lasting joy and happiness and can be taken away from us at any moment? Or do you desire more the satisfaction that Daniel realized as a, refu- as, as a result of his refusal to compromise? You see, he experienced the satisfaction of knowing God deeply. 
He experienced the joy of God protecting him from the consequences of sin. He experienced God's blessing and provision in miraculous ways. We'll start talking about that next Sunday. He experienced God preparing him for future purposes and opportunities. He experienced the joy of knowing eternal rewards were waiting on him in heaven. And he he gained the satisfaction of fulfilling life's purpose by striving to make God known to those around him. So again, church, here's my question. What do you want more? What do you want more? Do you want more all the things that the world is, is putting in front of you? Or do you want more the things that God has for you? And if you're the person that is just really honest right now and you're going, I think I kind of want all the stuff that you said would be true about the world and what it has to offer me. That's kind of what I want right now today more. Here's what I'd say to you. It's not that your desires for the worldly things are too strong. That's not your problem. Here's your problem. Your problem is that your desires for God are too weak. That's the issue. And you see, if you want to desire more what God has for you than the world offers you, here's what you have to do. You have to take intentional steps to grow in your desires for God. In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper says it this way. He says that beholding is becoming. That if we want to become like God, if we want to become the people that God wants us to be, that it starts with us beholding who he is. You see, holiness is about you and I seeing God for who he is. It's about getting out of bed and preaching the good news of Jesus to ourselves every day. Remembering how much God loves us. Remembering the grace that he's shown us. It's about us picking this book up and and burying our noses in it to see who God tells us he is. It's about us getting on our faces and, and talking to God in prayer and allowing him to speak back. It's, it's about coming into environments like this and, and singing and worshiping and beholding him. And you see, when you do those things, when you behold him, the Holy Spirit has this amazing way of taking the desires that live inside of you and turning them away from the world and toward a great and glorious God. You see, what happens when you behold him is this. You look back at the things of this world and they start to pale in comparison to all that he is. You go, honor, power, prestige, money. Why would I trade him in for all those things? They can't satisfy me like like he can. I know who he is and, and I see that stuff for what it really is. And there's no way I would compromise what I have with him for that stuff. I choose holiness because in choosing holiness, I get him and all that he offers me. As I was preparing for today, one of the commentaries I was reading, I found this passage that really impacted me, and I wanted to share it with you. It's by a pastor named James Boyce. Here's what he says. He says, for it's in the small matters that great victories are won. This is where the decisions to live a holy life are made. Listen, it's not in the big things, but it's in the details of life. I think we all know what that's like, right? Those kind of decisions. He said, if Daniel had said, I want to live for God in big ways, but I'm not going to make a fool of myself in this trivial matter of eating and drinking the king's food, he never would have amounted to anything. But because he started out for God in small things, God used him greatly. Church, do you want God to use you greatly? Do you want to live a life that matters? Do you want to live a life that counts? Do you want to live for the purpose that God created and saved you to live out on the earth? If you say yes to that, look, the decision to live that life starts with a decision to pursue holiness, 
even in the small things, even when it seems insignificant to do so. And look at me, I promise, if you behold him, if you choose holiness, God will take your life and use it in ways that you can't ask or imagine. I want to invite you all over the room just to bow your heads and to pray with me, if you will. God, we declare in this place, in this moment, that we need you. God, we say to you, God, that there's nothing in this world that we need more than you. There's nothing in this world that we want more than you. God, we want our lives to matter. We want our lives to count. We want to be used greatly by you, God, for the purpose you put us on this earth to fulfill. God, we want to make Jesus known the people who need to know him. God, we understand that that starts with a decision to pursue holiness. And so, God, I'm, I'm praying today, God, that you'd help us to make decisions each and every day. God, to choose holiness. God, help us to remember who we are in you. God, help us to trust you, to see the rewards of holiness as, as being greater than the risks of holiness. And, and God, would you just grow our desires for you as we behold you? God, draw us into who you are and help us to see that there is nothing better to live for than you. So with heads still bowed and eyes so closed, if you walked into this room today without a relationship with Jesus, if you're that person who has never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, the one who could forgive you of sin, save you from death and hell, and give you new and eternal life, I just want to tell you that this whole conversation about holiness starts with you making that decision. You see, holiness is not about you trying hard to be some certain type of person. It's not about you following a bunch of religious rules and you making yourself holy. Holiness is about you first putting your faith in Jesus as the Savior that you need and then allowing God to make you holy, to make you more like Jesus. So if you need a relationship with him, if you need to say yes to him today, and I want to lead you in making that decision right now. There's nothing magical about this prayer. I'm not imparting anything to you. But I would say just use this prayer as your confession to God, this or something like it. And you can just say to God, God, I know that I'm a sinful person. God, and I believe that I need a Savior. And, and I'm confessing today that Jesus, your Son, is the Savior that I need. I believe that he came into this world to die on a cross for my sins so that I could be forgiven, accepted, and loved by you. And God, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead so that I could be made into a new person and know eternal life with you. And so God, today I'm, I'm saying yes to Jesus. I'm putting my faith in him as the savior that I need. If you just prayed with me, that prayer, something like it, I just want you to know that right now God is already beginning to work on you. I want you to know that you can walk out of this place today knowing that when your life on this earth is over, you're going to spend eternity in the presence of Jesus. And from this day until that day, God is going to be working on your heart and on your life. He's going to be working to make you holy. And I promise if you'll pursue him like he wants you to pursue him, he'll use you in greater ways than you can dream up. God, I'm just praying that as 
we respond, as we sing, as we behold you in the next few moments. God, that, that you would stir our affections, stir up our love for you. God, would you just work in our hearts and lives we offer them to you during this time. We pray this in the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.